um, I had I was had the TV connected to like my over ear headphones. Mm-hmm. So I'm sitting on the couch with my blanket bawling my fucking eyes out <laughs> and if you were the kids outside listening to me just some person crying in their living room you yeah. cannot hear the tv at all just me sobbing hello and welcome to can't let it go a deep dive into things that are stuck in our heads. My name is Matt, and I use he/him pronouns. Hi, I'm AC. I use they/them pronouns. And we are doing the third episode of the show that, as of yet, still doesn't have a name. You probably will have heard a name said right before this when we finally decide on one. Mm-hmm. Um, we are excited to be back doing this again. This time, we have a little bit of a shakeup of uh, what we've been doing so far. Here on the show, we normally share a single big topic with each other done episodes on x-men where i spoke to ac about x-men for a while Mm -hmm. um and then we did an episode on a book by caitlin tiffany that ac is gonna have to remind me the name of again everything i need i get from you baby just the no baby at the end everything i need i get from you by caitlin tiffany uh where they shared with me all about this book and and internet fandom and all of the above and this week we're going to be covering andor where I will be sharing to AC my feelings and hopefully getting some feelings from them. But so first, many feelings. <laughs> but first, AC is uh, has I think a tweet that they want to share with me. Okay, I saw this tweet and I'm going to say before I read it, like there is one obvious answer. Like there is an answer to what this person is asking. Obviously, that's not why they're asking it. And then there's an mm-hmm. additional piece that I'm like. I have to just like mini rant about, right? Mm -hmm. So the tweet reads something and certainly I'm not going to name the person who tweeted this because Mm -hmm. I don't think that that matters or is important. And they're also certainly not the only person to have ever expressed this idea or frustration. So the tweet reads, why is it so difficult to generate original ideas and new IP? More Lord of the Rings, more Harry Potter, a hundred thousand sequels enough already and wow certainly not like a fresh idea (laughs) sure right like the obvious answer is if you have ever asked this question of yourself and like gone to the internet and be like to to be like why is there a cars three when i only ever saw the first one you might have learned that one of the reasons why sequels are so popular is because uh, sequels often make movie companies like much, much more money in the international markets than the initial run of a movie because international audiences when watching a translated film feel it's like easier to keep up with content Mm -hmm. where they like already have the context that they need. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, that's one reason it's because it's dangerous and hard. Like it's risky, quote unquote risky Mm -hmm. to, launch something without being confident that someone will be interested yeah mikey newman of movies with mikey says no one knows what they're doing it's like his it's his way of saying like it's hard to make a fucking movie yeah and like when you've already made one making a sequel is not as hard exactly and so like okay so that's that's the obvious answer and then there's the like just let people like things it it doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if it's not for you then don't go see it like it's it's fine but you don't need to be mad about it online unless you want to, and then go for it. 
But I, I also think that there is something that is so interesting about this idea. Like one of the most frequent conversations that I have had in like film classes that I've taken or in art courses that I've taken, like is the idea that there is no such thing as original art. And mm-hmm. like, sure, a uh, hundred thousand sequels and every which way you can reimagine telling the same story since the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet is a retelling of a Greek myth. That's a retelling of a oral history of some random person from somewhere I'm sure. Right. Mm-hmm. But like, it's just this, it's all recycled and like, that's okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that it also dunks on sequels as though, and this, I think this is so appropriate as like our lead in for an episode where we're talking mm-hmm. about an IP like star Wars. Right. Mm-hmm. Is that like sequels or more additional IP sometimes means like better things than Mm -hmm. the first ones. Right. And um, I won't like spoil too many of my feelings about Andor or Rogue One, but I Rogue One is like my favorite Star Wars movie for Mm -hmm. sure. It has its down, down, you know, downfalls there. There's some not great moments, but it's for me better than the first Star Wars movies I ever watched. I want to go back to it more often. And so like, I don't know. I think that the demonization of sequels or the demonization of like new things from the same IP that we've known for a long time is fascinating to me because like, yeah, it's tired, but I watched and loved all four John Wick movies. (laughs) I live for that shit. That's fun. The Fast and the Furious is an iconic series for a reason. Mm -hmm. And it's not... You can't you can't just make a different Fast Cars movie. Everybody's going to be like, I just wanted to go see a Fast and Furious movie. I didn't right. want to. See you could. Fast Cars You'd movie. have to have something original to say, which I think negates this idea that there's no original <laughs> content. Like one of my favorite movies in the last few years was The Old Guard on Netflix. Right. The Old Guard is, for all intents and purposes, a superhero movie. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is doing. It's it's based on a comic book. I know, like I know that, but like even that comic book story is doing things that other superhero stories are not mm, doing, mm-hmm. right? Um, and it was fresh. It was interesting. What that didn't make me think was, man, I'm not going to watch the next MCU movie, right? <laughs> right. Right. Um, we talked about fan service. I don't remember if it was last episode or the one before, but I. The MCU specifically gets brought up in these conversations of fatigue. And of um, not knowing what's going on because there's so much to watch. And, yeah. um, and like, being worse than it used to be. Yeah. And I think... I, 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 it's not that I don't agree with some of those things sometimes, right? It's not that I think Thor Love and Thunder was the best thing to come out of the MCU, right? Yeah, I didn't see it. I feel like yeah. <laughs> I, couldn't, I couldn't do it. Right. I was like, I don't want to... But, like, I do not personally tire of more of the thing that I, I wanted. I think specifically when it when it comes to that property, because the interconnection as a kid was a thing I was looking for. Um, and now the fact that it's like just what's accepted, right? Um, is um it's still novel to me. And also no one else has pulled it off well, 
right? Like you've seen other properties try and do that and it's not being done. That's the, I, I only bring it up to say that's the space that I see this kind of criticism levied in more often than not. Star Wars, absolutely. Uh, again, I will reserve some of those feelings um, yeah. for like the conversation about Andor. But I, I don't know that I have much to add other than I think that it's like <laughs> a, a weak criticism of, yeah. uh, you know, just of media generally. For sure. And I mean, I think like, the 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 last thing I want to add here is, you know, there there are some sequels that successfully do that, that use mm-hmm. the world that you're familiar with to bring you something new. And not every sequel does that, right? Thor, Lo- Thor Love and Thunder did not do that. Oceans 8 absolutely did that. Took mm-hmm. a format you were familiar with a casting like structure that you knew and said, we're going to give it to you in an entirely different way, make an entirely new movie that is tangentially connected to these things, but you will Mm -hmm. never see uh, like, you'll see one crossover character. Mm -hmm. Right. And you'll be like, ah, it's that guy. Right. Mm -hmm. And otherwise, I mean, I think the other thing about it is it stands a hundred percent on its own as a movie. Right. And like, Mm -hmm. those are the things that are more interesting to me and more defining for me. And like what makes good content in terms of like the serialization of content, right? Mm -hmm. Some of the best comic books or the best, you know, larger expanded universe type stories are often so lauded because of their ability to stand on their own without any of the other context, right? I'm even thinking of like capsule episodes in shows like Buffy, right? Like The Body, an episode in Buffy that's widely regarded as one of the best show, like best episodes of television from that era. You could watch none of the rest of Buffy. You would need to know that Buffy is a vampire slayer, that there are vampires and other supernatural baddies in the world. Mm -hmm. And you could still just watch the body and understand everything. That's like all of the emotion and all of the like, because the episode is about processing grief, right? Like Mm -hmm. everything that is happening in that episode without meeting the context of the whole show. Yeah. Um, I say as a person who've never, who's never watched it out of context. So listener, if you watch it out of context and you're like, I'm wrong. Okay. Let me know. (laughs) That's how I feel about, um, there's so many episodes, like little bottle episodes that I, I think that about, but specifically um, the first uh, Weeping Angels episode of Doctor oh, Who. A hundred percent. Right. It was actually the first episode of Doctor Who I've ever saw. Yeah. And I kind of was like, I don't really know what I'm watching. And then, you know, the Doctor and Martha show up at one point and I was like, cool, I don't know who those people are, but I really fucking <laughs> like this episode. And then I started watching the show later, yeah. right? Oh, God, what a um, show. What an episode to hook you to a show, for sure. Yeah, it, it was on television. Just, like, caught oh, it on television. Wow. Yeah. Wow. It was not even on purpose. It's it's an episode that a lot of fans say is, like, the episode that they showed to their friend or their loved one to, like, get them hooked in as well. Mm-hmm. So wild that it was just, like, a random circumstance for you and right. not, like, someone showing that to you on purpose because right. it's the known crazy- for having that property. Yeah, the crazy thing about that episode, or about me watching that episode, was that the next episode in the series and the next episode, like, that came on was the master, like, Mm -hmm. reappearing. Yeah. And I had no idea what that was. (laughs) I fully watched that episode. And then, like, when I watched it in context was like, oh, shit. You know, like, like, but that was years later. Right. Well, and I think it's also, 
there there's one thing that's left rattling around in my brain and then we can close this little conversation but there are also sometimes these moments where I encounter people who like something who don't know that something is a sequel, right? Like mm-hmm. um, Army of Darkness is a really good example here. Army of Darkness is in the Evil Dead series. So it's Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and then Army of Darkness. And Army of Darkness, again, is treated is, is often like in pop culture, this like standalone. It's not called Evil Dead. If you're not around someone who knows that it's connected to mm-hmm. Evil Dead and like explains that context to you and you were to see it on TV, you might think, oh, I like this movie called Army of Darkness and it's mm-hmm. just its own thing. But it's mm-hmm. actually a sequel loaded with references to the previous films that many people like don't realize. And I, th- I think I thought of that because I have encountered conversations with people about Doctor Who where you know, oh, it started in, you know, the 2000s with the Ninth Doctor. I'm like, no, 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 no. This has been a show for 60 years, right? (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's been, like, TV shows, there's radio shows. It's, like, very, very old IP that they have continued to expand and build on movies, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, analogous to Star Trek levels of content Mm -hmm. out there, right? So, right. Oh man, I just finished Star Trek The Next Generation. <laughs> um, I hated the last season, honestly, but like, yeah. it's a very good show. <laughs> yeah. What a show. Uh, season five is not great. Oh. Oh, are you kidding me? Wait, season five. What's the last season? Season seven is the last one. Season seven. Season five is season the best five one. Is, is gold. Yes, sorry. <laughs> it's, it's like season I three to five are incredible. Yeah. Five, I got 10 episodes in and I just texted a friend. I was like, are they all bangers? Like, I like have not stopped yeah. enjoying this season. And the answer is no. There's a couple real duds in that yeah. season. But like two <laughs> out of maybe 12, 13 in the last season. Yeah. You know? Um. Anyway, that's a good way to start the show. We should do that more often. Yeah. And now for uh, the show. And now for the for the rest of the show. So last time I told you that I was going to talk about Andor, and you mm-hmm. said that you had not seen. I had Andor. not watched it yet. Mm-hmm. And then you got a lot of texts from me during the last few weeks about yeah. me watching Andor and crying. Right. Um, Including one so today. <laughs> didn't realize how much crying there would be, or like how violent that crying would be on my part. Uh, but wow, did it really get me? Yeah. I I know that this is going to be impossible to summarize, but just like having just finished the series today, what are your highest level thoughts and feelings about Andor, what it is, and and like uh, I don't know your take necessarily, but just like yay or nay? Yeah. So overall, like yay and. Like with a few caveats, like there are a few mm-hmm. pieces of it that I that I wish were different or a few pieces of it where I was like, eh, it doesn't really seem like the way that I would have written the story, but I wasn't the writer mm-hmm. of the story. So that it, like, it does that matter. Right. Um, I, I really, really enjoyed this series. And I, I mean, I really love I love the story of the rebel just in general, but I I thought that it was a fresh and interesting take to you know, present the story of an uncertain rebel, certainly a familiar character mm-hmm. in like the Star Wars universe. Hello, Han Solo. Right? right. But the 
treatment of Andor and the understanding of like coming from a worker, like a planet of workers, right? Mm-hmm. Very, I mean, very Hunger Game vibes to it, right? Mm. In many ways, right? Or maybe Hunger Games is doing this, right? Like the 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 idea of like the unintentional hero is also always appealing. And I think yeah. that that's like a big part of this story. And I think, you know, if we called Cassian Andor a hero to his face, he would be like, I'm not a hero. Stop saying that. Mm-hmm. And he would be right. In many moments, he is not heroic. In many moments, he is self-serving. Um, and and he certainly doesn't come into the revolution because that is like the thing that he cares about the most, right? right? It's because he encounters other people who care about the rebellion um, and those people leave a lasting impression on him, which I think is like a valuable story to tell because it is one that I know is true for so many people around me, like in the real world Mm -hmm. and the stories of like how they came to activism or like how they came to cause-based work. So I enjoyed it for those reasons. So before watching Andor, I'll tell you where I was with Star Wars, which was I was done, Mm. right? I was, uh, I think I've said before, I've definitely told you before, but I've said before in, in, some pretty public spaces that the last Jedi is my favorite star Wars movie. Mm -hmm. I think it does the best job of like having a fresh message in, you know, the 2020s, 20 teens of, you know, uh, that is appealing and interesting and could make star Wars interesting. Um, and then episode nine tears (laughs) that dream to shreds. Um, the last Jedi Jedi absolutely whips. And then they're like, Oh, she's a Palpatine. And you're like, well, I don't. Okay. I guess. Yeah. (laughs) And I could want her to be (laughs) right. I could go on a whole rant, which I'm not, I'm not going to bother just because like, that's not what we're talking about today. But I think that that's more about JJ Abrams coming Mm -hmm. back and them not having an overarching plan. Mm -hmm. Um, was that a reaction to some loud parts of the fandom? Sure. But I think that that has less to do with it than anything. I think it's more about ticket sales and, and sure. all of the above. You know, that said, it ruined, for me, my interest in further parts of that property, right? Yeah. Um, I did watch the first season of The Mandalorian, and that was good. But I also was just kind of still hesitant about Star Wars generally, Hearing what I heard about Book of Boba Fett, I was very yeah, uninterested. Yeah, I did not watch that. Yeah. <laughs> I have to admit, again. Yeah. Seeing our friend Mitch like, post about how bad it was, I, I was just like, okay, I trust your opinion probably mm-hmm. more than a lot of people's. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the second season of, of Mando kind of gets into some, like, it, it, it just goes right back home to all yeah. the things, you know, that, that Star Wars has always been about. And... Uh, I'm tired of seeing Luke's face <laughs> and like, yeah. I, you know, I, I, the same criticism everyone gets, which is just like, tell me about the other parts of Star Wars. Yeah. That said, I didn't expect to like love Andor. Uh, uh, going into Andor, what you know about Cassie and Andor is that he is like essentially introduced in Rogue One as this pseudo Han Solo. Yeah. Right. He's, who, he's the reluctant hero. Exactly. Who, spoiler alert, we're and we're spoiling the whole thing today. I'm yeah. not holding myself back. No. <laughs> um, dies at the end of Rogue One, right? Right. Um, to basically the first Death Star blast, and that's all. That's all that I knew. Right. I knew he was a supporting character 
in a movie that I liked, right? But like, what more could you do with this character was kind of where I was. Yeah. Um, and it, it turns out you could do a, a lot. lot of really big stuff because Andor for me is, I don't, I don't think my fandom in Star Wars is reinvigorated, right? Yeah. Um, I sat in the room while Jonathan watched Obi-Wan and I uh, did not watch all of that. Yeah. That's what I'll say. I don't think that they will pull this off again and they may in season two, but like, I don't think they'll, they'll consistently pull it off again, but it made me realize that the, like there can be good things in this property. Right. For I sure. just have to like listen to the feedback and, and, and pick and choose between them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like the, when I said, you know, on the whole, I really liked it. I thought it was really moving. Obviously there were also parts of it that I was like, this is what I don't like about like mm. the way that star Wars has developed over time. It's part of the, like, what I don't like about the Palpatine thing, right? With mm-hmm. Ray, like the the one of the reasons why The Last Jedi was such a compelling movie for me, one of the reasons why Rogue One is such a compelling movie for me is because of that everyman co- mm-hmm. concept, right? And like that's why Han Solo is a lovable, likable character because Han Solo is the every man of this dynamic mm-hmm. when everyone around him is part of this like dynasty and history he's mm-hmm. just some smuggler right mm-hmm. who wound up here on accident mm-hmm. and so the that like every man piece was so satisfying in andor and andor was not exempt from the things that i like the least which is this like glorification maybe Glorification might be the wrong word to me. It is a glorification, but like the Star Wars equivalent of propaganda, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, we are going to talk about and feature empire characters as though you should care about and be interested in their like whereabouts and movements and like thoughts and feelings mm-hmm. in the same way that you care about the characters in the rebellion, right? Like, No longer is Darth Vader the enemy in the room, literally masked, wearing all black. Mm -hmm. You know he's the enemy by this like terrifying visage that he evokes. Now we're going to put all of these human faces on it. This is not the story of the the humans inside the stormtrooper suits. This is not the story of the people executing the harm. We're not only giving you the story, like trying to get you emotionally invested in the stories of people who work for the empire. We're trying to get you invested in the stories of the management of the empire. <laughs> like, we want you to care about some extremely high ranking intelligence officer. And like, I think I was supposed to be relieved that she didn't get killed at the end of Andor. And oh, instead I, I was feelings. fucking pissed. <laughs> I, I have feelings. I disagree is what I'll say, but okay. like we, we can talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's hard for me to know how to feel because I have such like personal biased feelings of like, there's clearly a good guy in this story Oh yeah. and star Wars as an IP on the whole, right? Like, like Disney is actively trying to monetize parts of the empire right like if you Mm -hmm. go to star wars land there is like Mm -hmm. a whole section you can buy a whole bunch of shit that's like functionally space nazi uniform Mm -hmm. and that's weird and bad to me Mm -hmm. and so i just felt like a lot of that was happening in andor that is i so 
people that uh, will know who they are that I talk about the show with online a lot mm-hmm. have brought up that specific thing several times. That specific shop, right, at Galaxy's Edge where you can start basically buy as if i haven't been to galaxy's yeah, edge i don't know what it's called uh you but like you can straight up buy like trooper uniforms right like and yeah. i mean like the like hugo boss looking shit you yeah. know like um but like the stuff that cyril karn wears in this show A little carl lagerfeld moment you know so i have we've been titling our notes like like they're uh you know i don't know research papers or something. Um, And I have titled my notes and probably this episode, the reluctant radicalization of Cassian Andor and his friends. Chef's kiss. (laughs) That is the shit we do like. I will say this show to me is made. There's so many good things about the show, but to me it's made in its dialogue. Yeah. And the phrase there's one that I texted you that I think sits with me emotionally, but the phrase I think that tells the story of the show the best is this thing that Vel Ma- or Vel Sartha is actually um, her name, but uh, she says just kind of off the cuff, right? Um, uh, in the Aldani section where she says everyone has their own rebellion, yeah. right? Um, and that that phrase to me does a great job of explaining why this show exists, right? To show you the various, the various ways that people are radicalized. Right. And also to say, this is a show about characters, about an ensemble. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think is the thesis statement kind of, of, I think it's, you know, Tony Gilroy being like, hi, this is what we're doing here. Yeah. And on that front, I kind of want to take us, through the radicalization of Cassian Andor by talking about the characters that he meets along the way. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. So who is Cassian Andor other than some, you know, rebel captain in Rogue One? Sexy. Agreed. (laughs) (laughs) But I think the interesting thing that this show does off the bat is introduce him as Cassa, right? Mm -hmm. This kid on a planet that we've never heard of before called Canari, um, living in a community of children, right? Mm-hmm. Presumably whose parents have been killed in a mining disaster on Canari. Yeah. Um, and sort of fending for themselves, both looking for rescue and trying to stay alive. A lot of that is assumed, right? Based yeah. on uh, what in gaming you would call environmental storytelling. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, you, you pick up on the hints, uh, right. the context clues, as it were. Yeah. It, I mean, the big question is like, why are these kids all here and there's no one above 18? Right. Yeah. And I would say immediately the story is racialized in a way. 100%. Right. That Star Wars just has not done in a way that wasn't um, a direct call out to the fan base. If mm. that makes sense. I think that's interesting. I think my take on it was that it's something that star Wars hasn't done without the other species being fully alien. Right. Yeah, that's because true. Because yeah. There are interactions. The Ewoks are a good example, right? Mm-hmm. Like where they encounter an entire civilization that you don't get any real additional information about other than, you know, the context clues that you pick up on, Mm -hmm. but they're always a fully alien race. It's never 
humans and hu- about the human colonization of space. Correct. Yeah. I, yeah, it is a, it's a very interesting thing because the way that Star Wars, uh, it's not even like it's saying anything in this case, I, which it's interesting because a lot of other moments of Andor are saying things, right? I would say most of the moments are. And it's, yeah. it's interesting that when it comes to race, they are both doing something unique for the, for the series on the whole, the franchise on the whole, but also like not, um, not stating a ton Right? Are they telling stories of a commu- of like a community that is racialized in some way by the society that um, has been abandoned, has been harmed? Sure, right. That is a narrative that they are sort of repeating and, and looking at. But beyond that, I don't know that they do terribly much. And I think um, that makes them stumble <laughs> into yeah. the thing that you, the first thing you texted me. Um, I don't. I, do, do you mind pulling up the text and <laughs> yeah, reading yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Uh, happy to. Da, 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 da. So I'll just quickly set it up. So um, Casa and, you know, the kids, um, they see this ship go down um, and uh, it crashes. They go to it. They're trying to find out what's what's up. Um, it's clear that there's been some like poison situation um, and like all of these Republic, because uh, that's we're kind of in the middle of the Clone Wars at the time. Mm-hmm. There's these like Republic I don't know if they're troopers or scientists or what, but they're kind of all dead around the ship. But one of them wakes up and, you know, shoots the sort of lead girl right in the, in the community um, who Casa has like painted his face to, to just like hers. Um, So there's, I don't know if they're implying some kind of romantic attraction or something Mm. like that, but they're implying some kind of relationship between. I read it as like admiration of leadership, like a desire to become the leader that then like is supposed, it feels like a heel turn when you see him later in his life, trying to avoid that leadership role that he was really, really eager to want to follow when he was younger. That is, that's a good, it's a good way of thinking about it, but um, they all, leave and he climbs onto the ship um just frankly i think trying to learn more but also kind of dealing with this grief yeah um and is found by marva and clem and from there i'll I'll let you read your text to me yeah um well i I, first i texted you i've watched three episodes of andor so far and my take is simply a cab uh which i'm sure we'll get into fuck corpo cops etc but then I said, um, I do have complicated feelings about a white lady with a British accent being perfectly comfortable picking up and essentially kidnapping an indigenous child to quote unquote save him. To, in her words, literally, I won't leave him here to die. Correct. Um, the assumption is that he would die or he would be killed by Republic officers who were coming to clean up the remnants of this crash. Right. And like even the show kind of kicks off with him looking for his sister. Right. So he yeah. he presumes that they are not dead. Right. And I later I think it's like the 10th episode or no, it has to be episode seven. Right. Marva yeah. says to him, stop looking for your sister. Yeah. It's clear that they have different understandings of what was going on there even if Cassian eventually right he obviously ends up going by Cassian but eventually comes to love Marva and Clem as mother and father yeah 100% even if those things are true they have different viewpoints of what was going on in Canari yeah I also thought that it was so I mean Marva winds up being like a character that iconic like so interesting and so powerful And, like, 
it was so interesting to get this introduction where they're setting you up for a story that then never gets returned to. Like, Mm. I know that in episode seven, right, Marva says this, stop looking for your sister. But Mm -hmm. it's not like a, it's only connected to that first episode where he got in trouble because he said that she was from Canary. Mm -hmm. And that's how people knew that he was from Canary. We didn't get any additional context of like, why is he looking for his sister? Why is he convinced Mm -hmm. that she's alive? What Mm -hmm. does he know that or what he feel, right? That, and and so I I think that's a thing that I hope that in a potential season two of this show is a story that we get to see more of um, because I'm with you. I think that it matters and is so interesting. I think that without it, a a lot of the show, um, and you've hinted this already with your feelings on Deidre, but a lot of the show is about looking at um, at characters that you're supposed to like, right? With a critical yeah. lens, right? And about complicating um, people you're supposed to think of as um, like straight up evil, like mustache twirling villains, right? With With like a little bit of nuance. I don't think the show like wants you to like those people, but I think that it, it is trying to introduce nuance to those discussions. And I think that it cannot do that with Marva unless season two lets us at least find out what's happening with, uh, with Canary, with the kids that were there with, uh, Cassian's search for his sister. Um, she doesn't have to be alive. Those kids don't have to be alive, but something has to be told about that story for Marva, I think to, make a 100% sense. Yeah. So Cassian is like, they, they call it rescued. We can call it kidnapped by, by Marva and Clem. And that's the, like, to, to me that it, th- there's two things that I think there are sort of the steps on his path to radicalization, right? There is the disaster itself. Yeah. It, even there's this moment where you you can't understand what the kids are saying to each other, but there's this moment where like his response and some of the other kids response to this sort of crashed ship are different than the leaders. Yeah. And it's clear that like that experience just that experience changes him in some way. And then obviously being taken to a foreign planet by two people you've never met For who sure. speak a language you don't know, right, is going to change your life experience. Yeah. I just recalled Uh, a thought that I had at the beginning of our conversation about his origins that I do think is salient. I will say it did feel a little bit of like um, we need a way to explain that this man has an accent. (laughs) Um, And this is the route that we have chosen when everyone else has a roughly like British or American accent. Mm -hmm. He's the only one with this sort of like other accent and we need to explain that (laughs) you know that's not crazy because uh i remember that being a criticism when rogue one came out yeah right um so it could just be that they never follow up on it and that's what it was yeah i think the cassian that sort of we meet at like the chronological sort of starting point of of andor is i mean he's not quite the person you meet in rogue one obviously this is a journey to that point but he is still fundamentally like a scoundrel a um marva mentions at one point like she she talks about it, it 
one of your women, right? Like he clearly like is both up to trouble and like having a good time, right? Many people money. Right. Money is huge in the show. And like specifically the money he owes people. um, I think um, he sees sort of paying that back, um, getting more money as his way out. Right. And that's like the person he is at the beginning of the show. We're introduced to him on this planet called Ferrix, um, which is where uh, Marva and Clem uh, took him to. At the beginning of the show, Clem is presumably not alive. We find out more about that later. But um, it's it's he and Marva. Ferrix is this, it is a place and it has a sense of place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in a way that a lot of locations, I will call them, in Star Wars don't, yeah. right? So... I'm not a Canto Bite hater. I enjoy that part of The sure. Last Jedi. But Canto Bite is... I don't know anything about the people who live on Canto Bite, right? Besides Broom Boy, right? Who is, you know, <laughs> presumably a slave, right? Right. Um, like, I don't, I don't know anything about those people. And I don't, like, I don't know. Broom Boy could be an imperialist, you know? Sure. Like, um... Like I, I literally, I know nothing about how that place operates other than there is a large casino there. Right. Yeah. And I think that that is true of most other locations mm-hmm. in star Wars. Ferrix, they established Ferrix, um, in a bunch of ways, but the one that sticks with me is there's this wall of gloves of workers gloves, right? So Ferrix is a place where people are tearing down ships for salvage, right? And they're repairing other ships and, at the end of the day, the workers come out of these doors and they hang their gloves on this wall in a public space. Yeah, right? it's so good. <laughs> Which instantly tells me so much about this place. 100%. It tells me about the culture of work. It tells me about the safety that people feel about, about you know, leaving their gloves in this like open communal space. It tells me about what they are trying to say to people about what this place is. Because... Presumably, Ferrix is a bunch of businesses, right? We hear a right. lot about about like business owners and people running businesses. I think it's possibly a marketing thing, right? Yeah. For for people that visit Ferrix, we know that Ferrix is a place that people travel to to have work done. Yeah, like scrapping and, and repair work. Yeah, exactly. Right, or people that come to um, resellers. Right. Yeah. Did you notice the thing about the gloves that I noticed? Which is what? There's one of them is missing. I didn't notice that. So in the in the scene where why is his name escaping me right in this Big moment? Boy? Big Boy. Brasso. Brasso. <laughs> My brain was saying Bassor and I was like that's not right. It's really <laughs> really fucking close. Close enough that I can't yeah. remember what the real thing is. So in the scene where Brasso and Cassian are talking right after Brasso has gotten off shift in mm-hmm. one of the early ones. Um, he's basically trying to convince, it, it seems like trying to convince Cassian to come back to work, right? Mm-hmm. Like to get back to the work that everyone else is doing. And a thing that I noticed was that there is a, there is a tile in all of the tiles where the gloves have been hung. Mm-hmm. And the way that I interpret it, this tile is empty. That's where Cassian's gloves should be hanging, but he's not working currently. Interesting. Um, and so I th- I'm pretty sure that's what I remember seeing. It doesn't seem like something that I would make up or, but maybe it was just like, you know, they, they were trying to give the sense of like, they leave them open, you know, but it, 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 
regardless of what the intention behind that space being open was, Mm -hmm. right? I think you are so right. For me, it tells me a lot about like collectivism, right? Like Mm -hmm. it is so illustrative and evocative early on of telling you that you you could safely assume that the rest of this story will be about how Ferrix rebels, right? Mm -hmm. Because the conditions, the working conditions of Ferrix, the living conditions of Ferrix, the cultural markers of Ferrix as a, like as a planet and a society, as we learn more and more about Mm -hmm. them, tell you that, you know, Cassie and Andor might owe everybody a bunch of money, but nobody's beating him up about it. They're mm-hmm. all like, come on, man. We all have to pay bills. Except right? that one guy who like brings the like big alien as a <laughs> yeah, bouncer. He, he, and it right. turns out like he doesn't really fight very well. He just right. doesn't he's want like, to fight. He's like, well, he told me to be here. And he's like, come on, man, we're friends. Right. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, even the shakedowns are like collegial and like centered around this like kind of implied community trust. Right. Yeah. It's I think it, it's placed by the um the understanding of that community right yeah. um patrick willems uh like video essayist on on youtube has talked about like why mcu films um feel a little emptier than like the spider-man films of the 2000s and if you go watch the sam raimi spider-man films there's just random characters in new york that you know a ton about right? oh because he just places them there. That's what Sam Raimi does, yeah. right? He just like he's telling he's telling you the story of community by showing you the people that live in this space, right? Speaking of Sam and Raimi, Army of Darkness, exactly. Sam Raimi of Army of Darkness. He <laughs> and, does that in Army of Darkness too. It's great. Yeah, <laughs> but like Star Wars is not in the same way that MTU can, cannot be. Is not great at establishing spaces through characters, yeah. right? Um, and Andor bucks that trend pretty immediately. Yeah. I did think one other thing that I noticed a lot when they were doing a lot of like the placemaking of Ferrix is they never shied away from like showing you the scale and like Mm -hmm. getting the sense of like, this is one neighborhood in a much larger complex that we are coming to know, but like, like that scale and that sprawl, right? Like this is Mm -hmm. not a contained city within a wall. Like we see in Rogue One, this is not a farming community where most people live many, many miles apart, right? This is akin to other places that we have seen. You know, I'm thinking of the planet that I can't remember the name of in when they go to get C-3PO's brain reset. Oh, I'm not going to remember that. I don't know. You know, like like buildings stacked, families Mm -hmm. stacked on top of each other. Like, and in many ways, right, like, this the unspoken placemaking that it does is if you've lived in a city you know i spent the afternoon listening to my upstairs neighbor's kid practice violin outside the window because of proximity right mm-hmm. and like okay. how that proximity builds camaraderie but right. even though i like don't know my upstairs neighbor's kid's name right right but i see her and we say hi and like we are in community with each other regardless mm-hmm. yeah Another thing that's interesting about Ferrix to me is uh, in in a lot of Star Wars, what we have seen, um, like the ways that the Empire has shown up has been stormtrooper presence, right? Mm -hmm. When you, when they show Jedha in Rogue One, one of the first things you see is a tank with a stormtrooper on it. The Empire, it's not that they're not there, but their presence is different. 
the way that the Empire makes its presence known in Ferex and the Morlana sector generally, which is where Ferex is, is through these sort of like corporate police forces. They are government contractors. Yeah, they're government contractors. <laughs> it could not be more on the nose about some feelings, right? Um, but so there's this there's this organization um, called the Preox Morlana Authority, and uh, they're they're corpo cops and they they suck is is the truth but the first time we meet cassian is he's on morlana one um looking for his sister he gets kind of shook down by a couple of you know schlubby corpos and accidentally kills one of them and realizes he has to kill the other one to get out of the situation right so he kills these two corpos and then flees back to ferrix back on morlana one the sort of lead of Preox Morlana has no interest in following up on this case. He kind of understands what's happened. He's not too worried about losing, you know, to corporate security people. Yeah. But his underling, um, Cyril Karn, who is a major character in the show. Fucking Cyril. Um, very much is. <laughs> uh, Cyril's boss is, I don't know, leaving for the weekend or something like that. Yeah, he like, he's like, I don't want to do the fucking paperwork. And like, yeah. honestly, Yeah. Yeah, and Cyril kind of takes over and goes just, like, on this, like, holy war to find whoever killed, right, these people. The show does not shy away from the thing I'm about to say at all, so this is not, like, a unique thought. But Cyril is uh, kind of an alternate universe um, of what can happen to a person in an imperial society, right? Mm. Cassian is one example. Cyril is another and I, I think that there's a lot of people dislike that like Cyril's story is in the show at all. I find it to be really compelling because I think of Cassian specifically. He's raised in this home that is pretty objectively not wealthy, right? But is nurturing. He has what he needs, mm-hmm. right? He, he has his emotional needs met and like the basics of the, his other needs met. Cyril, as we come to find out later, right? Raised in a, not the wealthiest home, but a relatively wealthy home on Coruscant with an abusive mother. Yeah. (laughs) Just like a straight up shitty person who will go from in one sentence telling him what a piece of shit he is to the next telling her how, you know, telling him how proud she is of him. Yeah. And I think that it's not just their home lives that are a part of this. It's also like the class aspect of, you know, the society they grew up in that, um, you know, changes their response to the empire so in one scene Cyril Karn is shown to have like little stormtrooper action figures right in his childhood bedroom which it's clear that like he so desperately wants to be a part of this thing that is bigger than him that he thinks is like the good guys doing the good things uh, when in reality it's like fascist being fucking fascist yeah right right I thought it was interesting that you specifically said that like he was engaged in a holy war because like it, I think it's, it's a very apt metaphor if only because like the thing that he worships is like Republic order, right? Like the thing that he worships is the law in Mm -hmm. the worst, in the worst way. Correct. Like altering his uniforms. Was that like supposed to be like, Oh, he's gay. I took it as more as like his like, uh, He's like above everybody. Like he can do whatever. Yeah, he wants. like like yeah, sort of his religion of law. 
right? Okay. Like I took it as like part of his people pleasing, his empire pleasing. Okay. I so I I see a lot of Edie, his mom, mm-hmm. in my relationship with my grandmother, mm-hmm. and like the things that Edie wants of Cyril, and the way that she speaks to him. Yeah. are ways that my grandmother spoke to me when I was younger mm-hmm. and, and, and the things that, you know, that she's expecting of him or things that I was expected of me. Yeah. Right. And the, so when I, when I see him doing things like that, I see him trying to please her, but also in a way that rebels. Right. Yeah. She makes fun of him for it right. at one point. Right. She's like, your collar's high. He's like, I had it tailored. Right. But I see that as like, she, she probably wanted him to like dress nice. Right. Um, all the time. And so this is his way of doing that. But he also knows it's a way that's not going to like please her. He and his like, I don't remember this guy's name, but he has this like little underling in Preox Morlana and they. The sergeant. Yeah. Yeah. The sergeant. They're basically LARPing every time they're in a scene <laughs> together. They're like, they're like so bought into the procedures and protocols that like even like later on when they no longer hold those roles are calling each other like sir and sergeant and like it it is embarrassing yeah in the final episode you know there's like a a trooper blockade and they're like they just march right up to it like they're gonna be let through and Mm -hmm. they're like no and they seem confused and surprised by that yeah like you're just civilians (laughs) at this point like yeah they are so convinced of their own correctness right that they put themselves in situations where they do not belong so this whole show is kicked off because Cyril Karn decides he wants to find the person that killed these two corpos, and he quickly finds out it was Cassian and goes after him. Goes to Ferrix, um, tries to arrest Cassian, and it goes catastrophically wrong. Cyril, Cyril gets there, and at this point, Cassian has... Um, he's trying to, to pay back all of his debt and hopefully find a way to escape what he knows is coming for him because he's just killed you know, to corporate authority officers. And he's trying to sell this thing. It's called a star path unit. It's really just kind of a MacGuffin, but he's trying to sell it (laughs) to someone so he can get that money, pay back his debt and get off the planet, right. To escape. And he finds a buyer through his childhood friend and I don't know, presumably former romantic fling Bix. I think confirmed romantic fling. Is it confirmed? I don't remember. Yeah. But he finds this buyer who turns out to be a character named Luthan Rail. Luthan Rail, we quickly find out, is in some way driving some portion of the early efforts of the rebellion. A man of many secrets. Yes. He's <laughs> he's got a cloak, he's got a staff, he looks like he's a scars guard. <laughs> yeah, he's a he's a he's a fucking scars guard and he looks like one. You know, like all the scars guards have those faces that look like they're like They've like gone through shit for the last seventeen years. The the face that like what is scariest when it looks genuinely happy. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, he has come to Ferrix presumably to buy the Star Path unit, but we start to figure out has actually not come here for the Star Path unit. He's come here for Cassian, right? Yeah. He has heard tell of Cassian through Bix, through the his other sources, and he thinks that Cassian could be a additive force to the beginnings of this rebellion. And at first Cassian's not really on board, but when the corpos start coming at him, he's like, 
I got to leave with this guy because he's my only way off this planet. He's my ride. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they um, sort of set this trap for the, you know, for Priok's authority and send this sort of truck-like speeder off as if they're getting away in it. And the Corpos blow it up. Turns out it's not them. They get on this tiny speeder and speed off towards uh, towards Luthen's ship. But what that means is that now Cyril Karn is left with nothing. He, he like, when he thinks that he's blown up the truck that they're in, he's, like, beaming. He's like, oh, my God, I fucking did it. He's not, you know, he's not saying these things. But yeah. his face, he's just, like, grinned. You know, you just want to punch. Yeah. And then the moment he realizes he's fucked up, he looks like he has lost everything. He looks like you killed his dog, like, for yes. sure. And it's because he did lose everything, right? Yeah. He immediately loses his job. He's immediately yeah. told to sign a report that he doesn't get to read right about what has happened. And in fact, not only does he lose his job, Priox <laughs> Morlana loses their authority over the Morlana system. And the empire now directly controls that system. He loses his job. He loses everybody else, their jobs. And this guy named Sarge is like, or this sergeant is like, mm-hmm. we're still buddies. And I actually still want to help you carry out our worship of the written word and like catch yes. this guy for sure. Like <laughs> what? And I, you know, I think Cyril Karn is definitely still righteously in his own way going after Cassian, right? Sure. He still believes in himself, but there has to be a part of it that is, he sees Cassian as the problem in that scenario and like wants to get back at him. Yeah. I mean, and I think that like, it's so, he is also to me so clearly illustrative of like the, the general sense that you are supposed to get about the way that Palpatine rules the empire, right? Which is like, if I can stamp out this one problem, I will fix mm-hmm. everything. Like if I can erase this one person, they're the key. They're the, if I can take this one person down or take down this one planet, right? This one community, right? And I, I think that that is, it's like this tiny microcosm of like that attitude that we see played out mm-hmm. um, time and again. Yeah. This is leading me to the ISB. Um, because there's this great line. So it's the Imperial, what is it? Uh, Imperial Security Board or Bureau. Imperial Bureau, Security yeah. Bureau. Yeah. Um, it's basically the management level of the Empire's FBI. Right? Yeah. <laughs> or the NS, like FBI, NSA, CIA, all rolled yeah, into one. Exactly. Um, Secret police vibes, you know. We spend a lot of time there. So that, the guy that fires... Uh, Cyril Karn and all of Priox Morlana is Blevins, who is one of the ISB officers. Yeah. But we spend a lot of time in the ISB with uh, Deidre Miro. Um, and she's this somewhat new ISB officer who's like trying to make her name, make a name for herself. Deidre gets, and I was in like the fourth or fifth episodes, like really like, where the fuck is this going? Right. Cause she gets this storyline that is very much, um, it's it's this girl boss storyline. Right? I was gonna it say is, it's giving girl boss. Like it's giving we gave you women. We you asked us for more women in our shows. So we gave you a woman. Yes, she is a cop. Yes, she is evil. Yes, she has really bad motives. Um, ignore all of that. She's a woman. We're excited about that. The villain is a woman. <laughs> I disagree. 
with what they are trying to do with her. Yeah. But I agree that that is what it's giving you in the fourth and fifth episodes, right? For sure. The... The the tone of her story is literally she's going up against Blevins. Blevins is like calling her out at every chance he can get, trying to get her fired. And she, her boss recognizes her as doing better. And she gets these kind of like shit eating grins on screen. And you're supposed you like find yourself rooting for her because that's what the story is doing in that moment. And then you're like, oh, fuck, she's she's the bad guy. She's the fascist. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like and the thing she has done well is be a good fascist. Correct. <laughs> right. Um. There, there's this moment later on, um, we can talk about like the details of it when we get there, but there's this moment later, later on where she is on Ferrix torturing Bix and she is like staring into her eyes, like inches away, you know, saying shit that like the most evil people on television say. Yeah. Um, and that to me is the show being like, yeah, we wanted to show you a complicated story about a villain, but remember She's the villain, right? Yeah. Like she is not the person you are rooting for in the show. And I think that's I think that's where I say that I disagree with you is that like the show itself, I think Gilroy and the other creator, I'm going to reference Gilroy. He's not the only person working on the show, sure. but he's he's the one, he's the sort of lead creator. He did uh, Michael Clayton. He did the Bourne movies. Um, like he's the one in charge. And I think the thing that he and the team are trying to, trying to do with Deidre is complicate the villains, but at the same time, like, show you the face of evil, right? Sure. Like the, you, you mentioned the mask, but you, specifically to sort of like take that off. Um, literally there's to get very specific about it. There are very few stormtroopers in this show. Yeah. Right. People with helmets often have their faces exposed. Yeah. Right. Um, and I don't know that it's the space ball special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know that it's necessarily doing the thing where you are supposed to have feelings for this person and like, care about them but i i do think it's challenging you in a way that is like what are the ways that this empire continues itself right what are the ways that people get wrapped up into a thing like this right i think that is where where her story resonated with me i mean and i think it like i think that it is worth mentioning at this moment too like when you're introduced to her and all of these other isb officers one thing that I could not help but keep noticing as I watch the show, and like I know all of the like budget reasons why this mm-hmm. was the choice, but like it is very telling, right? That all of the ISB officers at least visually appear to be human for that sector, mm-hmm. right? And that we are telling stories about human cruelty, right? Like is interesting, right? And as again, I mean, we touched on this a little bit earlier when I, I made a similar point about like, it's the first time you see this kind of mm-hmm. very, very different, <laughs> exclusively human community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're telling human stories because it's much easier, like budget wise. And it's not that there are no quote unquote to humans, alien races, but I'm sure like mm-hmm. the Ewoks aren't aliens on their own planet, you know, right. like that's, it's like a weird <laughs> thing that we do when talking mm-hmm. in the star Wars universe, but that like the inhabitants of Ferrix, the staff of the ISB, all of these corpo cops, majority human, like vast majority. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's in pretty stark contrast to a lot of the other storytelling that we have seen. Yeah, um, there's it not is even real like weird. there is a droid, right? But he's not even he's a a supporting character in an even lesser supporting character way. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was also particularly striking to me, and this would be jumping too far ahead, so I'll say it, and then we'll go, come mm-hmm. back to it when we start talking about it. It's particularly striking to me um, in the episode where he is incarcerated, mm-hmm. that he is incarcerated exclusively with other humans. Yeah. So two things. One, I think it says something in in narrative, right, about the Empire, yeah. right, and about their about the usefulness of humans versus the usefulness of, 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 you know, aliens. We'll go with aliens. Other races. Um, But two, right. Tony Gilroy has said in interviews that season two is going to have more. And two, it's because he as a filmmaker didn't really know how to work with like puppets and makeup and stuff. And so this was like his first experience with that. So you do see some aliens and, and whatnot, but they're usually background characters, but yeah, totally right. We've got we've got Deidre and the ISB, and we have Cyril Karn, and these are the these are the characters through which we see the Empire work. And the thing the thing about these two characters is they really shouldn't interact that much, but Cyril cannot let the Cassian thing He's go. He's obsessed, baby. He yeah. is so obsessed. His abusive mother and his, you know, off-screen uncle get him this new job and he uses his his, you know, ability at that job to file reports looking for Cassian, right? Just like completely false reports, which gets the eyes of Deidre who has taken over jurisdiction of of the Morlana system from Blevins because of her girl boss story, right? Um, <laughs> you know, this gets him in a room with her and he immediately is horny for her. Oh, so um, horny. Like, he like this man's abusive mother has given him a mommy kink and like <laughs> he is straight up like I am putting that on this woman mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's um, so accurate. <laughs> <laughs> and she's basically like I need you to stop, right? She wants yeah. none of it, right? She she's, she's a girl like boss. she doesn't need no man. Exactly. And which is not even that. She's like, you're not, I need you to do your job. Yeah. It's like, Like, please, this is a work set. You're, you're being interviewed like for suspicion of, of like breaking the law. Right. (laughs) Hello. Right. (laughs) Reality. And instead he, his like worship of the law. Right. And his abusive home life lead to him worshiping this woman and sexualizing her at one point he follows her to work because he's so convinced he's doing what's right and like grabs her by the arm when she tries to walk away one he's a creep but two i'm sorry she is like management at the space fbi yeah right this is like don't do that yeah (laughs) i mean i think that that's why my read on it was like that i was supposed to not be upset that she died at the end because it's so clearly positioned as like he is the one who is out of line by mm. handling her in that moment. And like that you should feel sympathy for her that this creep has followed her to work because he is obsessed with this case. Yeah, that's a fair and, that's a fair way to read it. So like I think that and 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 maybe that's just like how how I maybe that's not the story that they were trying to tell like they were trying to tell his obsession was supposed to be the more interesting thing that was happening Mm -hmm. there um but I was so interested by this juxtaposition of the two of them right and like it I will say it was an interesting take because so often the cop shows are like 
I have, oh, there's this random person who's deeply personally invested in solving this crime. They're my new buddy. And like, mm-hmm. this was like, we're not doing that. <laughs> right. Yeah. He, he has such a desire to please. He has such a desire to, you know, appease the emperor, appease his mother, appease, De- appease Deidre. And it leads to his downfall so many times in the show over and over amazing how many times you can learn the same lesson <laughs> oh man this, this is not my particular problem but like boy do i know that um <laughs> but like he was actively he was overdoing it when you know his boss was out of town and that's like what led what led to this entire story but also yeah. you, you know what led to his personal downfall i want to talk about luthan more than we did. It was important to talk about him when we did. What a guy. But I want to talk more about who Luthen is. I think it's interesting just to say at the start that when we talk about people's like characters um, philosophies in this show, I find it interesting that one of the most prominent characters in Andor is an accelerationist revolutionary. Yeah. A person that, I don't know if generally we all believe this necessarily, right? Because I don't think a lot of people even think that deeply about these kinds of uh, philosophies. But of the ones that do, I think it's generally accepted that accelerationism is wrong. This belief that, like, you make the bad things worse so that people rise up and rebel against them, right? This show says those words, like, two or three times. Yeah. Right? Um, And... Twice is from Luthen. One is from one of the um, the officers on Aldani. Luthen, I think, straight up believes that. Yeah. There's there's a there's a time where someone is you know telling him that something's going horribly wrong, and he's like, "Good, yeah, right. That's what we need." Um, he says, "We need the fear. We need them to overreact. The Empire has been choking us so slowly. We started not to notice." Um, and I believe it's uh, Mon Mothma who says to him, yeah. "People will suffer," and he says, "That's, That's the plan." The point. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah, that is who this man is. Yeah. I think I, I think too about, um, when he says, uh, the, I burn my life to make a sunrise. I'll never know Mm -hmm. or see future. I burn my life to make a sunrise that I know I'll never see. Like he's committed. He is Mm -hmm. all in on this. And I think about like, uh, when I was in grad school, um, not to like go all academic here for a second, but when I was in grad school, there are, uh, you know, in, in a contemporary sociology theory class, my one of my professors tried to discount France Fanon, a very like famous, like if you're listening to this and you're like, who am I talking about? Look it up. I encourage you to read his work. It's like very compelling, very moving. But it also is this same kind of like accelerationist, right? Um, revolutionary perspective that like violence is necessary. It It is mm-hmm. what is required to rebel against a violent system. And, um, you know, that, that prof- my professor dismissed all of the theories that this man has to offer the world that are important and like, groundbreaking for any number of reasons because it had that attitude and like you know mon mothma has such is so i think it is so interesting that that it is in a conversation with mon mothma that he says that Mm -hmm. because she is so horrified by it as Mm -hmm. though she is would never intentionally cause suffering when she's 
a fucking senator, mm-hmm. right? Like she is literally in the government, uh, an active part of the government that decides who or who doesn't get what resources and when. Like mm-hmm. she is already engaged in the project of suffering, even if she right. does not want to see it or admit it yeah. to herself. So I've been calling Mon Mothma fantasy land Hillary Clinton. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> We can, I can tell, I can, I'll give my whole speech about Mon Mothma later. I will say, I think Mon Mothma is the most interesting thing to watch in this show. Oh, I, she is magnetic. I mean, I think yeah. both the actress herself and her portrayal of Mon Mothma draws right. you to it. But I think that Mon Mothma also is in so many ways, like, representative of who... I think Luthen is like who people, when, when you ask someone like, who would you be in a revolution, right? They're like, oh, mm-hmm. I'd be the Luthen, right? Mm-hmm. And like the reality is it's more likely that you'd be the Mon Mothma, mm-hmm. right? The real, or, or the Cassian, right? The questioner, right. Th- not the one who's ready to light the fire and throw the first, right. you know, the first elbow as it were. Right. I think that's probably why I enjoy watching her is because I see myself in her, right? Yeah. So the reason that we're bringing up Mon Mothma at all, um, Luthen is sort of this character who the rebellion is not terribly organized, right? There are pockets of rebellion. There's organization within those pockets. And Luthen's version of that is he has this very loose sort of collection of people that he's carrying out rebellious activity through, right? It's all very secretive. These people don't often know each other, or if they do, they don't know that they have all ties back to Luthen. And one of those people is Mon Mothma. Mon Mothma is... (laughs) I think she's introduced as like the rebel leader who like gives medals at the end of the first star Wars movie. I think that's the first place we see her. <laughs> I may be totally wrong, but I believe that's the first place we see her. It might um, be. Right. But she's also a leader in rogue one. The same actress plays her. Right. Um, and like, she's the one sort of setting the mission out for Jen or so. And captain Ca- and captain Cassian Andor. Yeah. Um, and in this show she is still a senator in the galactic senate um or what do they call it i don't know when it's an empire anymore but she's she's a senator no i think and, it's still the galactic senate yeah the reason i call her fantasy land hillary clinton is because what she's doing oh, the imperial senate the imperial senate yes what she's doing to the world right the, the face she shows to the world is she is this neoliberal she she often says pushing back against the uh, emperor's overreaches, right? Yeah. And she um, she says she wants to be seen as like one of the empire's little annoyances, right? Yeah. But in reality, the thing that she's doing is funding Luthen's part of the rebellion, yeah. right? She is channeling funds to the rebellion in the background, and like. I'm sorry, but Hillary Clinton's not doing that, sure, right? Sure. Like, like there is no world where the secret thing that Hillary Clinton is doing is like actually, you know, trying to <laughs> overturn fascism, right? right? Um, and it's it's like a dream scenario of what that person could be, sure. And it's why I enjoy watching her, right? Because I I exist in a space in the world where, like, like you said, I am more likely to do the things to, you know, be an activist or to, you know push back against repressive systems that Mon Mothma would do than I am to do what Cassie Nandor or Luthen Rail would do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the space that I exist in. It's frankly the comfort level that I have, 100%. right. Which is a huge part of activism. Um, and I find her 
like you said, magnetic, but like the struggles that she's dealing, she's dealing with are things that I just am compelled to watch. Yeah. A hundred percent. And I think that like, she is so, I, I, I think of all of the senators that we get introduced to over the course of the various stories who are somehow involved with the rebellion, hers is so interesting because like there is also an element of like the way that she is funneling money is like putting her personal state, like it, it's, it's her personal stakes, right? Like mm-hmm. it's not just about like, like it becomes more evident later on in her conversations with Val and like the revelation that she's related to Val, right? Like that it is much, she says, oh, it, it's my Senate seat at risk here. But like, mm-hmm. there is much more on the line for her as she mm-hmm. funnels this money from her family funds to this. And like, I think they they try to delve into that and in some of like the family dynamics of like, how is she going to get access to cover up this siphoning that she has been doing? Yeah. But I think that it's so interesting. And I I mean, I think someone that we haven't really, and I don't know where in your notes mm-hmm. land, who is so connected to Luthen that, that I am fascinated by is Luthen's assistant, who I don't think ever gets named in Leda. Leda. Is it? I think, or let me, let me double check that because her name and Mon Mothma's daughter's name are quite similar. Very similar. Uh, Luthen assistant. I think that's probably the, the have- issue is like, I don't really know. Clea is her name. Leda is Mon Mothma's daughter. Okay. Okay. I the thing about Clea is I actually don't know what the relationship is there. Um mm. on a more civil on, on more civilized age, which is, yeah. you know, a podcast about Clone Wars, but they did a whole series on Andor. They they were speculating that Clea was actually the ringleader. Right. Yeah. Um, or that there that was a more flat vibe. structure. Yeah. <laughs> you do that kind of get that kind of vibe when Vel shows up to be like, what are you doing? And she's like, right. what, are you, what are you fucking doing? <laughs> right. <laughs> I'll kill you right now. Yeah. Um, Another interesting thing about, about Mon Mothma is that she, the way, the things she's willing to put on the line, right. Change over the series. Right. Yeah. So in the same, like everyone in the show is, is going through some sort of radicalization. And I think for her, it's what is she willing to put on the line for the rebellion? Yeah. Right. In the first episode you see her in, which I believe is episode four, um, her daughter comes in the room and, you know, she's like, basically I'm taking you to school. You better get ready, grab something so we can go. And her daughter very clearly is like, you don't have to pretend to be interested in my life, right? Like they clearly have this like toxic relationship. Yeah. And it's already been clear that she and her husband basically just exist as a political entity, right? Oof. Um, and, you know, her husband kind of backs up the daughter and it's kind of, it's this really gross moment. But in that moment, Mon is still interested in the family unit being maintained, right? Is still interested in a relationship with her daughter. The final episode of the show, right? She basically uses, she sells out her own relationship, essentially. She uses her relationship as a cover for where her money is going by accusing her husband of, you know, succumbing to his gambling addiction again, when she very much knows that is not the case, right? She is putting her marriage at stake. And at the same time, she is offering her daughter in this, the, the, Mon Mothma and her and her family are from this planet called Chandrilla, and Chandrillan culture is, is a culture that includes some 
rituals around marriage and betrothal, uh, especially, you know, at young teenage arranged ages. Arranged marriage, yeah. Yeah, arranged marriages. And she, that that's where Perrin and, and Mon, that's how they got married. That's how they met. But she doesn't want that for her daughter. And the way that she, she, she gives that up for the rebellion, right? Yeah. Because the way that she's going to cover her spending is basically by arranging a marriage for her daughter to this Chandrelin gangster. Yeah. I will say that I found it valuable that their choice in that scene um, or in that, in that series of decision-making was to set it up as something that like her daughter would be interested in and open to. Like I, I did appreciate that, like by setting up this sort of oppositional dynamic between her more modern mother and her more Mm -hmm. traditionalist daughter, right. That like, it wasn't a story of like, this girl is going to be forced into an arranged marriage against her will. Right. Right. The story was, I personally object to arranged marriage because I have seen the consequences that it had on my life. And I live far enough apart from my society that it's not something that has to be like a tradition that has to be prescriptive from, for my children. Mm -hmm. And I want my children to have the opportunity of choice, but like, so what she has to give up is her own Mm-hmm. conception right she doesn't have to give up her daughter's purity right right like which is one way that you could read it right she does she chooses to give up her daughter's purity because right. she agrees to the meeting or whatever but i think that like the more interesting thing that's happening there is that she chooses to let go of her personal misconceptions about this tradition right to engage in this political politically beneficial arrangement yeah. And I think that that's a more interesting story that we don't get told a lot. Another more civilized age uh, callback. Um, they had a really good discussion about how there's this thing that happens. Um, we're used to stories of like the young rebelling, right? Yeah. And that usually looks like things that are um, less traditional, right? Where there's this, there's this interesting sort of, uh, not backlash, but like other direction thing that happens sometimes where literally what it's called. (laughs) Okay. That happens where people go more towards tradition. Yeah. Right. They, and the way they rebel is to go the other direction, uh, sort of chase something else. Right. Um, they were talking about how imperialism, um, you know, generally, but also in star Wars kind of strips away identities, strips away culture. Right. And so it would be natural for a young person growing up on Coruscant to be searching for that culture, to find comfort, right, in the culture of their family's home planet. And that is what is happening, I think, with Leda. That's the thing that, that's the reason she wants an arranged marriage. It's, um, it gives her that agency while also being believable. Yeah, and, and and of choosing to be, like, defined by... I am Chandrilin and therefore this is something that I want for myself because this is part of my culture. Yeah. And people right. will know that I am Chandrilin by the arranged marriage that I've entered into. Mm-hmm. So if Mon is one of Luthen's connections and an agent of his sort of pocket of the rebellion, um, Cassian is his latest, right? Is his, his latest, uh, find, yeah. um, and I did. I did notice that um, he is very much positioned. Uh, Luthen is very much positioned as a, a collector, both oh, of yeah. things and people, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So Luthen runs. Um, Luthen has a dual, literally a dual personality. 
Um, he has this sort of like hard Skarsgårdy right personality where you know he is this rebel leader, this accelerationist. But there's there's a transformation in, scene in this show that is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> like when he's landing back on Coruscant. He literally puts on different clothes. He puts on a wig. He poses in the mirror to like put on a different air. And does a little ta-da. Yeah, does like a (laughs) ta-da, like a little twirl. And like goes from this like hard grungy guy to this like presumably like gay flamboyant like. A lush, a hundred percent, you know. Right. And yeah. And he runs this like antiquity shop essentially on Coruscant. And that's where he and Mon meet, right? That's she comes to him and they have these sort of veiled discussions. It's his front, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so, and he, that's where he runs his operations out of the back of there. He, he and Clea uh, often talk about the various people that they're interacting with. When he brings on Andor, he says this phrase that I want to mention only because it uh, comes back up later. He says, to convince him, he's, he's you know trying to get him on board. He says, wouldn't you rather give it all at once for something real than carve off useless pieces till there's nothing left, right? Mm. He's like, he's trying to say to Cassian, like, look at the shit that you've been through. Like, you obviously hate these people. Even if Cassian yeah. doesn't realize that he hates the Empire yet. Like, he's like, everything you're telling me leads, leads me to believe that. Like, I need you to do this job for me because it'll help you, you know, it'll help you get back. And the job he wants him to do is this, vault heist essentially on this planet called Aldani. Cassian agrees. He meets Vel, who we later find out is, you know, Mon Mothma's sister. And um, he also meets a crew uh, that has been living here for months planning this heist and, you know, making sure it would go off without a hitch. Turns out they were not quite ready and they very much needed Cassian. Right. But the thing about this is that Cassian is not just convinced he's being paid. He is a mercenary in this situation. Um, There's a lot of really good character stuff here that I frankly don't think we have the time to get into, right? Like around being a mercenary versus everyone being there for the cause. Yeah. We could probably do a whole two hours just on the Aldani episode. Exactly. (laughs) The thing I want to bring up here and the person I want to talk about the most is Nemec um, or (laughs) Karis Nemec. Nemec. How you pronounce his first name, I'm not sure, but um, to, to, to... Read you the text that I sent AC a couple days ago. Uh, I'm well. I'll tell you about who Nemec is really quick. Nemec is this. Um, I don't know if I'd call him an idealist, but that's the way the show kind of sets him up as compared to the rest of the crew. But he's very much an ideas guy, right? Like one of the other people on the crew basically calls him out for only having ideas, for only writing things. Nemec is also very much like the techie, right? He, he knows what's going on with like this really old hardware that's like out of date, but is untrackable, right? By the empire. And that's kind of why he's there. He's there to be the knowledge guy, but as the knowledge guy, he's literally writing a manifesto for rebellion, right? Yeah. He says to Cassian at one point, you're my ideal audience. When he finds out that Cassian is not actually quite sure what he believes. He's obviously there enough to be there, but like he's not quite convinced, right? Yeah. He says, you're my ideal reader. But in that conversation, and I swear to God, the things these people say off the cuff, I'm like, how did you write something so good and then like deliver it that way? But he says, the pace of oppression outstrips our ability to understand it, which I texted AC, God, that quote, and then my sweet, smart, soft boy Nemec, because yes. that is all that I can think about Nemec. 
Yes, 100%. And Nemec is like, I think of all of the cast of characters that you're introduced there, um, you're also like, he's the one that you're most immediately like, oh, I like this kid, right? Like, oh, yeah, everybody yeah. else seems like maybe a little sketchy, maybe a little weird. They have their particularities, right? And those either get revealed or they don't, right? Um, but Nemec is also clearly supposed to be if Cassian is Nemec's ideal audience, we are also Nemec's ideal right. audience, right? Because we mm -hmm. are following Cassian here. Um, and I mean, all of the stuff that gets subtitled in Rick's Road, I like will maybe start crying just thinking about how they juxtaposed that like setting in that final episode. But like also those moments where they're trying to get Cassian <laughs> to to take the manifesto, right? Like, you know, he had to have read it, right? Like, presumably, right. he must have read it at some point. But we don't ever get to see him reading it, mm -hmm. right? Like, but he must have read it. Right. And then in that last episode, you, you do, you do, right? You yeah. finally do get to hear it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to look up the text really quick. I got um, it right here. Oh, do you? How how did you feel about sort of the text of his manifesto? You know, one, it, of course, it's shorter than I want it to be. I looked mm -hmm. it up because I was like, oh, did they like write, actually write a full thing and publish something? Um, I think that it's so interesting to describe this as a manifesto because it is so simple, although manifestos do not need to be long. Mm -hmm. Um I think that there are some parts of it that I find more impactful than others. Right. Um, and then there are some parts of it that I'm like, what an interesting way to frame that, that raises red flags for me because of the context that I live in, mm -hmm. but maybe isn't applicable at all in right. the context of the universe where it was written and exists. Right. Yeah. So like, I think something that is so interesting and like very much this tension is so strong through the Andor series is there is so much of the text, not just of Nemec's manifesto, but the text of these, the, this show is so in contradiction with how many fans perceive and interact with the universe as like the Star Wars universe as a whole. Mm -hmm. Again, there's no need for us to delve into <laughs> what the Star Wars fan base is mm -hmm. like, has done. You know about it. Mm -hmm. I think that the line that really sticks out to me that I love is the random acts of insurrection are occurring constantly throughout the galaxy. I was literally about to read that line. That line, like that, and the two lines that follow it, just like straight tears down my yeah. face. I think that if someone said that to me in a moment where like I was trying to make a decision about whether or not to join a revolutionary movement, I might kiss that person on the mouth like immediately <laughs> yeah. because what a like, it is already happening everywhere all of the time, right? We all have our own rebellions mm -hmm. and they are also broader than just your personal rebellion always. I think the line that makes me go, oh, I stress um, is like the idea that the imperial need for control is so desperate because it is so unnatural, right? And that's just like, um, 
I don't love the terms natural versus unnatural and like thinking about things in the natural order because of the context that I live in, right? Mm -hmm. Where that is how so many people use um, like and define like biological essentialism Mm -hmm. for race, racist biological essentialism, Mm -hmm. right? Sexist and transphobic biological essentialism. So I personally always like wince at like the idea that fascism is unnatural. If fascism were unnatural, then it simply would not occur. There is something that is inherent to the the human condition that creates the context of oppression. And like, do I know what that is? No, but there, I mean, white people, sure. Like, Mm -hmm. like we, like we, we can, we can be that general about it or we could try to get more specific and, we would never land on what the answer is. Right. But I just like, I'm always like, <sighs> I want that to be true. I want that to be true, but I do, I don't know. Yeah. I understand. I do think the phrase that, that, or the sentence that follows it, which is, it's very straightforward. It's tyranny requires constant effort. Yes. That feels correct. Right. And Nails is, it. and is also part of like the thesis, I think of the back half of the show. Yeah. Right. Um, Oppression is the mask of fear. Yes. All of that is like really correct and true. And I also felt the stuff about um, the word nature specifically is interesting. Um, I, this will not be the last time I mentioned a more civilized age, but they had a whole philosophical sort of theory based discussion around, around Nimick's like personal philosophy, Mm. just the idea that there even like are natural things like Nimick clearly believes that there is something inherent to humanity yeah. And that fascism and, and oppression is not a part of that. Yeah. Right. And like that itself is an assumption. Yeah. And, and I think it speaks to he's it's the idealist part of him. Right. Like mm-hmm. it is an idealist thought. Correct. So the reason we're talking about his manifesto so much is we're spoiling this because I'm assuming you've seen it. But Nimick, <laughs> of course, cannot survive the Aldani heist. Like <laughs> you meet him and you're like, this man dies. <laughs> Right? It's so sad. And it and like even though you know it's coming, it happens in the most gut punching is not the right way to say that. Um in the <laughs> most <laughs> heart wrenching way. Yeah. And um Cassian, you know, does scoundrel shit, but as he's leaving, Vel offers him the manifesto saying, Nemec wanted you to have it. Um he you know, he said it as he was dying. I'm like, we don't, we don't fucking know if that's true or not. Right. Like it could just be Vel being like, I think this is the right thing for him. Yeah. But I tend to think that it was something that Nemec wanted, especially if he thought, you know, that Cassian was his ideal reader. Like that would make sense. But the point is that Cassian is carrying this manifesto with him through sort of the rest of the steps of his journey towards being a rebel. Kitty cat. Sorry. He's, there is something outside the window that is fascinating to him in this moment, and he will not leave it on. So, as much as I want to continue talking about Nimic, we have to move forward. No, <laughs> I want to talk about Nimic. No, no, I, I get it. <laughs> I understand. I'm here. I just like my last thought is I, I do well and truly love Nemec, and this does feel like a moment where the. Sh- choices that the show makes could like like stumbled a little bit for me and like if what we're trying to do 
is bring like a more interesting and more diverse face to Star Wars. If like mm. the, even even if that's not a stated goal of this series, in many ways, right, right, it's trying to tell you a different kind of story. That the manifesto comes from this pure idealist, right, perfect little white boy who is teased by the other people around him for never really having experienced anything bad, right? For being right. too young to have truly seen the cruelty of the world feels like a missed opportunity for that to be like a moment of connection. Like it feels like it could have been such an interesting opportunity to be like a callback to a person who also came from a planet that the entire population was wiped out by a mining disaster, right? Mm-hmm. That to come from a person who also had a parent who was a separatist fighter, right? right? To come from a person who is in some other way connected to the story of Cassian that compels him, if not to sign up for the rebellion, that compels him to be even just this much more interested. Mm-hmm in what this person is trying to sell him. I don't think like you, it would require changing the story that he's still a reluctant. Yeah. Right. But that there was, it felt a little bit as much as I love Nemec and like, right. Keep everything exactly the same and make it a different person with a different familial, like history or context. Mm -hmm. And I personally would have felt like the, the, big emotions even bigger you know right yeah like he could be anybody and still have the same feelings right yeah. that we have about him right yeah you can you can put everything that exists about nimic onto another person and make that person more nuanced more interesting and more compelling in terms of the way that they convince cassian yeah 100 percent. I, I i buy that and i agree so Cassian and the crew, they pull off this heist. It's really, I'm, I cannot believe I'm blowing through this part, but it is, it is some of the best TV. Like There's the episode, the heist TV, it's the excellent. heist episode is so fucking good. So good. I will say it's worth noting too, that during the heist episode, you get a lot of good like context about like how specifically like Imperial oppression has been happening on this planet. Oh yeah. Shit, and yeah. like, so much interesting stuff that we don't get in a lot of like, well, I think that you get in a lot of the like extended star Wars, like Mm -hmm. universe information and less so in like the primary films, but like, you know, certainly you get this kind of sense in like clone wars or even in the bad batch or like different things where you hear these stories of these smaller planets where, People are being restricted in different ways. People, you know, to your point earlier about Chandrala and and, and Chandrala mm-hmm. and traditions, right? These people, the empire is intentionally blocking them off from their traditions. And this is the last year they're going to be able to go to this sacred place to, to witness right. this thing. I mean, right? it's the last year that they're going to be able to go to the place to witness the sacred thing because they sl- then slaughter them all right. and wipe them off the map later, right? But like... If they hadn't, I I think that the subtext that I got from that was that if the Empire hadn't chosen to do it, to to slaughter them all for that reason, there was going to be another one. Mm -hmm. It was something that they wanted. They wanted that land. They were going to figure out how to get it. 
And it did not, they did not care about like the cost, right? There's this scene where like the officer sort of in charge of the operation um, during this like sort of celestial event is essentially what they're witnessing. He is talking about the ways that they have dwindled the population that returns to this sacred space every year. He's like, you know, we like very explicitly stopped them, but then we, you know, it's a long trek. We put... I forget what he calls them because it's like rest centers. It's like way or, stations, yeah. Yeah, like little way stations w- with like culturally, you know, appropriate uh, beverages and, yeah. and sort of resting stations, right? And he's like, and by the time they get to the top, they started with 500 and it's 60, right? Or something like that, you know? And he's doing all of these things that make the empire seem like they care. They are, you know, taking care of this sort of, cultural identity when in reality the thing they're doing is like dwindling the number of people that yeah. maintain that identity. Yeah. Um, also this is the sequence where the line, everyone has their own rebellion comes from. Um, it's sort of while they're on the way to the garrison at Aldani that yeah. Vel, you know, is explaining it, They, they work with this, um, Lieutenant, um, that is a Lieutenant in the empire, um, yeah. who has, is sort of selling the empire out to help with his heist. And, you know, Vel is telling his backstory to Cassian and like why he would be involved. And, you know, that it's a part of that, you know, she's, she's saying, you know, his wife was killed by the empire. He lost his taste. Everyone has their own rebellion. So they pull off this heist. Cassian now has the money that he, he was looking for the money to pay people back, the money he thinks to get out. And he goes home and he has this incredible conversation with Marva. She is clearly sick and getting worse. He comes to her saying, look, I scored. We don't have to be here anymore. She's like, you should not be here. There's stormtroopers here now. Right. Because yeah. really because of the thing he did. Right. right? Um, she's like, you, like, you cannot be here. You have to go. And he's like, look, I've got the money. We're leaving in the morning. Like we have to go. And she's like, go where? Right. And he's convinced that if he has enough money, he can escape the oppression that he experiences on Ferrix. Yeah. Which is like, sure, maybe that's a little bit true, but it is fundamentally flawed. Yeah. Right? I mean, and it and it turns out to be, they, they turn out to play out that story, right? He takes yeah. his money, he goes to be a tourist somewhere, and he gets arrested for doing literally nothing. Literally nothing. Right. Right. Because, because the Aldani heist meant that they ramped up security in various places, including the place he thought would be the safest, which is like a tourist planet, right? Yeah. Um, and it... Turns out it was probably the worst place he could have gone. Yeah. Right. Um, although anywhere he could have gone would have been bad. He he says, "We'll find a place they haven't ruined yet." And she says this line. Oh, I melted. She says, "I'm already there. That place is in my head." Not only is she this old woman who is is sick and whatnot, but she has, through her experiences, through the loss of Clem, who was murdered by stormtroopers in the middle of Rick's road, the main thoroughfare through the, their town on Ferrix, she has become a member of the rebellion without ever yeah. being conscripted like into the rebellion. You know what I mean? She has like never, she's never met a rebel, like a rebel leader. Yeah. And she considers herself a part of the rebellion. A hundred percent. And, it reminds me of the phrase that we read from Nimick's manifesto, right? The, just this idea that like, there are acts of rebellion happening all the time and everywhere. And the way that she is going to rebel is that she's going to die on Ferrix. Yeah. Right? I mean, she is not going to leave her home. 
Yeah. And like now I'm like crying a little bit over here because like thinking about it, I mean, truly like it is so the way that they tell that story of like coming to that realization later in her life. And then when like for as as much criticism as I have for how they introduce Marva, Mm -hmm. she becomes both in that moment and then, you know, in in Rick's Road one of my absolute favorite characters in the way that she communicates that, that those experiences and like clearly, right. Like in the same way that, you know, they are, they're trying to throttle, you know, cultural convenings in Aldani. They're trying to culture, you know, destroy these cultural practices and Ferrix as well. And like, I, I think I get a little misty eyed thinking about the fact that like, Technically, Marva's last act was to um, smash a trooper across the face, right? Like, because when Brasso <laughs> smashes that right. trooper with her brick, like, yeah. what a so, little nugget of justice for Marva. Yeah, on Ferrix, the, the the people are presumably cremated and their remains are put into these bricks that are then laid into a wall, like, on Ferrix, right? She, you know, sort of gives this speech that incites, uh, you know, a, a rebellion, a literal rebellion. Yeah, right? she's like, re- pre-recorded fighting. a message yeah. because she knows she's about to die. And Brasso just like hits somebody over the head with the brick that is Marva. Absolutely beans them with a yeah. person. Brasso a fucking brick. rules. He also just like curb stomps a guy. Yeah, I will say <laughs> I, because I um, don't trust television because I like too many prestige shows. Um, the way that the Rick's Road episode was going, I was very, very worried that they were going to take both Marva and Brasso away from me in the same episode. And I was going mm-hmm. to have too many feelings. Like they were really setting it up like Brasso's going to fucking die. And I was mm-hmm. like, no, I can't handle that. I won't be able to handle it if they he just got back there and he loves this guy so much and Cassian's already lost so many important people and it's going to break his heart. Um, and then they were like, no, he escapes. Don't worry. <laughs> and I said, okay, thank you. But I think that like the other pieces about Marva that are so special and interesting are just this like, Right. Everybody has their own rebellion. It's happening all the time all around us. The point that you made about like never meeting a rebel leader, like very interestingly, right? Like Bix never met a rebel leader. Mm -hmm. And even though she does give up some information, she doesn't do so willingly or easily. And Mm -hmm. even Nurchi, when we see Nurchi, you know, narc on Cassian being there, he doesn't seem convinced he mm-hmm. is he is the same as Ca- in that moment i read it as he is the same as cassian cassian mm-hmm. might have done the same thing to get the absolutely money. he would have done the same right? thing like yeah to to get the money to get himself out of there right because mm-hmm. the ticket to escaping the oppression that you're experiencing is somewhere that being somewhere that is not here mm-hmm. yeah i agree so we've covered almost all of the characters that i want to talk about the one character that we haven't covered is Kino Loy. I can't handle it. <laughs> Kino. <laughs> I could see it in your face. <laughs> so we talked earlier about how, um, about how, you know, Cassian is like, look, we've got to go. Um, and, you know, Marva's like, I, 
you can't stay and I can't go is the word she uses. Right. Um, And they very clearly say their goodbyes. And he says, you know, I'll be back. She says, of course you will. But it's so clear. This is the last time they're going to see each other. It's like the show is not giving that any room. Um, And we find out it's because he goes to Niamos, this party planet and um, just walking to the store to pick up some pizzas and Revnog is what he's going to get. Um, uh, Gets, Stopped by a shore trooper who accuses him of being a rebel. And he's not not a rebel, but he was walking to the store. Yeah. Right? He was doing literally nothing. And they don't say, that guy looks suspiciously like Cassian Andor, who's currently wanted in the Empire. Let's stop him. Right? right? It's not, and it's not even like they racially profile him because he speaks to them with an accent. And they're like, oh, that guy that they're looking for has an accent. Right? He's literally just picked out of a crowd. Yep. Completely random. And I mean, the interaction he has with that trooper is like listening to any description of a shitty police officer. It's so deeply upsetting. Yeah, it, I was I was extremely uncomfortable. Right. And, you know, I will say you said that it's not like a racialized decision in that moment. But like, I don't think it's a coincidence. It's not, not. Yeah, 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 exactly. I don't I'm not here trying to say like the cop wasn't a racist, you know, sure. like in this case. He probably was, but the the point of that interaction is that he cannot escape. Yeah. There is no escape from this oppression. Um, and he's taken to this planet called Narkina 5, where he um, is on this sort of prison that's similar to the raft in Marvel Comics. Where he where hurts it's just my the... feelings every day <laughs> by being a really great person and caring a lot about his fellow inmates. Yes. He... Um, they it's presented to the inmates as this prison where they are very kind and they don't carry weapons and whatnot, but that's because all of the floors are fucking electrified and they can turn them on at any moment. And uh, they call it being fried. They can fry these guys. Right. And all the security guards have on these boots that make it so that they don't get fried. There are scenes in these three episodes that I cried at just because of the sense of oppression. Yeah. Right. hundred there, percent. There's a, I think it's, I believe it's in episode eight. Um, I went looking for it today and I couldn't find it, but there's like a series of three shots of just the architecture yeah. of this building. I mean, it's a literal, it's a literal panopticon, right? It, yes. it is, it is, has the, like many people talk about the prison as panopticon metaphorically, or, but mm-hmm. it, in this sense, it is quite literally, you know, a, spherical shape although it's technically hexagonal right Mm -hmm. with a central column and an outer wall where all even the transport tunnels have visual surveillance Mm -hmm. where people are cordoned off in rooms with visual surveillance where their chamber like where their bunks do not have walls or doors right and where presumably right like i mean i think they're they're are some good moments where they like have realizations about like what level of actual security there is. And like, yeah. this is the intention and purpose of the panopticon. There is a perception, the scale, the shape of the building, the physical space and environment around them is designed and, and evokes those emotional feelings because it is designed to make you feel like you are being watched at all times even if you are not actively, right? There's an episode title called No One's Listening. Yes. Right? He, like he says, they're not listening to us. He's trying to convince um, Kino Loy, the sort of shift manager, we'll talk about the work they're doing, but the shift manager that like, they should escape, 
right? Yeah. He's And he's like, we can have these discussions in our bunks because no one's listening. No one's listening. He says, they don't need to make an effort. All they have to do is turn this floor on twice a day. We're cheaper than droids and easier to replace. Yep. Yeah, I found the architecture versus the reality of being perceived to be unsettling, right? Like difficult to watch at times. So the thing they're doing in this place is, I mean, similar to basically any other prison is they're doing slave labor and they are uh, being made to make these parts that the things they are actually making is a very star Wars bullshit thing, but uh, it's in like an after credit scene, but um, they're making these parts that, apparently the empire needs right and they are being you know pushed to make them faster and faster every day um i found it was really interesting the language that gets used about the Mm -hmm. work they're doing Mm -hmm. right at one point they talk about um working sprints right and just like the way that the various tables that are building these things are are sort of gamified against each other Mm -hmm. right because the 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 table that does the worst gets fried at the end of the shift. Right. And, uh, the table that does the best gets taste in their flavor, flavor in their flavor in their food. Yeah. Yeah. Um, just sort of the gamification of it to be just like a level of oppression that added to it. And frankly, a way for, I think the audience to relate, right. The people that are going to resonate this shit with this show, I think most likely are people with, white collar jobs right Mm -hmm. that know these words and can point to them and like recognize like oh (laughs) right like that is the way that like capitalism oppresses in everyday life um that that stuff i think is part of why you know they're doing fly-throughs of this panopticon and i'm like crying just from like how like difficult i'm imagining this to be yeah 100 percent so Kino, like I said, is the Kino Loy is the shift manager for, you know, Cassian's group. He's played by Andy Serkis. The man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Andy Serkis. And he fucking delivers. Every time, baby. He never misses. He never I just hear, misses. I hear on program in my head and it's in yeah. Andy Serkis's voice. Yeah. Most of this is, it's less, I think, personally about Cassian's radicalization. If anything, Cassian is reaching the end of that process, right? A hundred percent. And it's, it's more about Cassian teaching other people, radicalizing others. And in, in doing so sort of completing his own journey. Right. So Kano is this person who has been here much longer than Cassian has and who doesn't doesn't necessarily see the value in escaping. Doesn't understand, like, thinks that it's better to keep your head down, do the work, you know, serve your sentence. And that's all good and fine until it's found out that one of the floors of this prison was just completely murdered, right, by the guards because they found out that when you get released, you just get sent back to prison. No one's actually going home. The only way you're going to get out is if you die. Yeah. Right? One way out. One of the men at Cassian's table uh, during the shifts is named Olaf, um, and and he dies. The medic comes, you know, says the only thing I can really do for him is like give him a merciful death, yeah. and sort of tells the story of what happened on the on the second level um, to Kino, um, and you know Cassian's been trying to get him to rebel this whole time. He's asking him how many guards do they have on each floor, and he just won't answer the question. And the episode ends. By him just with the words, never more than 12. How many guards on each level? 
never more than 12. And it's these just like words that mean nothing, but have so much fucking meaning, right? Because that's the moment you realize, oh, Kino's in. Like Kino bought it. Yeah. In that moment. Well, and, and too, like, I think the other things that are like important in context there, right? Like Kino saw the death of a person who he has served his time with alongside for a very long time, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the presumption and the way the information is presented to us about this prison is that like, once you are assigned to these units, you do not get to move about. There is not a lot of socialization beyond mm-hmm. like at, at work. Um, and it, in the work environment, you know, Kino cares a lot about having not just the like Kino doesn't care about which table in the room is most successful. He cares mm-hmm. about having a very productive room. And that means that at some level, he does care about the like physical health and well-being of the people that he manages, even if he is managing them in a prison, right? Like, even if he is, like, to an extent complicit in the enforcement. And I I think that, like, complicity is such a complex thing in this situation. Like, can you be complicit in enforcement in an environment where you do not have a choice other than to be? And, like, the complexity of, like, he is doing the thing that he needs to do to survive. And in his mind, the thing that he needs to do to survive to then be able to be released at the end of his sentence and return to his life. Right. Right. It's interesting too. I find that he, um, when he's doing his job, he is often literally repeating the thing that is being said over the loudspeaker, right. By the, the guards. Um, except for when he's on the floor, encouraging people to get shit done. He's not, he doesn't really have his own agency in performing that role. Yeah. Right. And I mean, and and I think that like Kino's paranoia that someone is listening, right, I think is so informative of that, right? It mm-hmm. truly, I think, is is reveals to you that Kino does a lot of this because he thinks that they are watching all the time. Mm-hmm. He thinks that if he deviates, if he does not do this perfectly, something bad will happen to him, right? right. And like for him, the breaking point was finding out that he has been doing this perfectly. He has been doing it. And that's not going to, that's not, that doesn't cut it. That doesn't right. actually get you where you need to go. Right. In, in trying to convince him, um, Cassian uses this, um, this line and it's really a reflection. I think of the thing that Luthen said to him, which was, wouldn't you rather give it all at once for something real than carve off useless pieces till there's nothing left. Cassian says to Kino, I'd rather die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want. Um, which I think is two ways of saying, you know, this, the same thing. And when they eventually do escape, right. And they go to sort of the central command station and Kino is giving the speech to say, escape, get the fuck out. Right. Mm-hmm. Like th- he's saying, this is what there's one way out and it's right now. He repeats that phrase over the loudspeaker, wouldn't you rather die uh, die trying to take them down than die giving them what they want? And it's in the way that Cassian saying that to him was a repetition of what was said to him by Luthen, and to me was an acceptance of like a final acceptance of that reality of that like need to fight back. Yeah, Kino is now accepting that and doing what he can in his place to fight back. 
Um, and which makes it all the more sad that when they escape and they see that they have to jump into this giant ocean, Kino can't swim. And it's like the most heartbreaking moment on a television show. It hurt my ever. feelings so bad. <laughs> it hurt my feelings so bad. I think it's a better show if we never see him again, but I would like to imagine that he's alive and survived and like, I don't know, you figure out how to swim. You don't yeah. just drown, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that there is also some part too that is so interesting to me that like they're they're also like I I think it would be so interesting if like what we find out, you know, three seasons from now or whatever is like, oh yeah, Kino couldn't swim, and there were actually a ton of other people who couldn't swim and weren't strong mm-hmm. swimmers. And then that number of people who were not ready to leave the place where they were, who didn't have anywhere else to go, maybe, right? Like, mm-hmm. who didn't want to swim across an ocean to maybe survive on the other side of it. They still outnumbered all of the guards in this prison, and mm-hmm. they turned it into the place where they live, you know? Mm-hmm. Um and like, did they figure out how to hijack the transports that presumably deliver both the people and the guards to it? Like, mm-hmm. like there, there are for as much as like the one way out was like a compelling and moving and like mm-hmm. urgent, right? Like description of that. There are also other ways out of that prison, right? Right. And you see the guards like hiding in a closet from it. Yeah. There's 5,000 of them versus I think it's, I counted it. It's. 12 times seven, right? Yeah. That would be 84. like 80, at the most yeah, 100, 100 people maybe. Right. Yeah. So it's like, like 60 men to a guard. Yeah. Or if you assumed that the guards were like the prisoners on rotating 12 hour shifts, there are at max, what 200 of them, mm-hmm. right? Like, like 85 who work during the day and 85 who work at night. Mm-hmm. Right. Like they're Yeah. They, they would always outnumber them. Yeah. For what it's worth. The show is getting a second season, but it's only getting a second season because yeah. it's planned yeah. that way. Yeah. So I am excited to see where it goes, but I really hope that they do what they did well this time, which is tell a coherent single story. Yeah. Right. And if we, if we get to see Andy Serkis's Kino again, great. Yeah. And if not, he'll go down as one of the great, <laughs> one of the greatest, like, I think there are so many reasons why Andy Serkis is such a compelling actor, but I think that one of the things that really stuck out to me in this episode is just like Andy Serkis has got such range that Mm -hmm. is so incredible and so impeccable and plays out in so many different, you know, of his roles from playing, you know, he loves to play like a slightly complicated, maybe villain character. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it just, this was such an Kino, the character as written could have been a thousand times less compelling. Like, I think Mm -hmm. there, there are, there are some of these characters like Nemec. I was like, you could have made that literally anybody and I would have bought it. Right. Mm -hmm. But the writing of Kino is so well suited to how Andy Serkis can hold that character Mm -hmm. and can hold that complexity and intensity in all of the ways that Andy Circus acts with his whole body, I just I love Kino so much and like truly cried ugly, ugly tears during that entire back half of that. When episode. he's hunched over that microphone, like giving that speech, 
not only is he doing incredible acting, but the writing is so, so good. So good. Especially because he gives a shitty speech first. He gives the worst speech. And Cassian's like, that's all you've got? Yeah. And then he gives the most fucking compelling speech you've ever heard. And that ends today. There is one way out right now. The building is ours. You need to run, climb, kill. You need to help each other. You see someone who's confused, someone who's lost. You get them moving and you keep them moving until we put this place behind us. There are 5,000 of us. If we can fight half as hard as we've been working, we will be home in no time. One way out! One way out! One way out! The most fucking compelling speech you've ever heard. Except for maybe the speech at the end of the same episode by Luthan Rail, right? Yeah. Um, which... Like I will probably play at some point uh, whenever we edit this episode because I started like immediately diverge from Kino, but Luthen is talking to basically a somebody they have embedded in the ISB, right? Yeah. Um, and he gives this fucking Shakespearean monologue about like the things that he's given up to be a part of this rebellion. I wake up every day to an equation I wrote 15 years ago from which there's only one conclusion. I'm damned for what I do. My anger, my ego, my unwillingness to yield, my, my eagerness to fight. They've set me on a path from which there's no escape. I yearn to be a savior against injustice without contemplating the cost. And by the time I look down, there's no longer any ground beneath my feet. What is my, what is my sacrifice? I'm condemned to use the tools of my enemy to defeat them. And it's like, I thought I had watched the best speech in Star Wars. And then Luthen did that. And I was like, how is this Star Wars? How did they make a show this good and it's in the Star Wars universe? I think that, like, my brain was also so trained to expect, like, a really strong good speech, like, once per episode. That Mm -hmm. when we got two in one, I was like, whoa. They're really trying to make it clear to us that like (laughs) something I think they're really trying to make it clear to us that like this is the turn, right? Like Mm -hmm. this is the moment where the story, the game has changed and like giving you the larger context of like not only has it changed for Cassian, but like the wheels in the larger system are turning Mm-hmm. And they are turning towards the rebellion that Luthen is working for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we if, if we go back to the sort of moments of Cassian's radicalization, right? I said that I thought that sort of his convincing of Kino was like his turn, right? Um, we've got the disaster itself on Canari. We have his his rescue. Um, we have meeting Luthen, right? We have the Aldani heist and meeting Nemec. We have his conversation with Marva, right about her own radicalization we have narkina five his convincing of kino his escape and then we have the moment of him listening to the manifesto on the ship that marva and clem brought him to ferrix on right in the yard on ferrix and then we have you know after marva has died and has you know given her pre-recorded speech and it's kicked off this rebellion 
we have him going and finding Luthen, right? Who yeah. has come to Ferrix just like every other character because yeah. they all knew that he would be there. They were all looking for him for one reason or another. Most of them to kill him. It was about 60-40 kill. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and he finds Luthen on his ship and says, kill me or take me in, right? It's him saying, you wanted me? Yeah. I'm here. You can kill me if I'm a loose end, right? But if you want me, I'm here. I'm I'm in. I'm in this yeah. rebellion. I, I just like the way that the show tells the story of his being convinced that the rebellion is worth it while also telling the story of like of change of other characters in the same direction, right? Like yeah. it's not unique for a TV show or anything to be about characters changing. Like that's that's no. the point of stories, right? But like the idea that they are they are all in some way being convinced of the same ideas, right? Um, in the way that matches their own story, which it was, it was poetry, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's, it's super good. Yeah. And I think it, it is also so interesting because it is like, it, it, if you were to encounter this sort of timeline in a different story, in terms of like the cast of characters that he meets that push him towards that radicalization, you might find the order to be um, like, Nemec is the last person that he meets, right? Mm -hmm. That in in a different version of the story, he is on Ferrix the entire time as Marva radicalizes and he doesn't Mm -hmm. understand the purpose of her radicalization. It's fine here. We live here. We deal with it. We don't like it, but it's just how it is, right? And she becomes angrier and angrier and does something that is the thing that pushes him towards questioning right like Mm -hmm. there are different iterations of this story and i think that like it is it is the the tell of good storytelling that you can imagine all of these different ways that the storyline winds up in the same place with the same characters Mm -hmm. right and like really speaks to that how each of these people contributes to like i think that if you would if if you were talking to cassian in the first few episodes and you're like who is Luthen? He's like literally just some guy with money. I don't care. Right. Mm-hmm. But that he comes to Luthen at the end is like, I am ready to sign up for this project of rebellion that you have engaged mm-hmm. in. Right. Like identifying him for the backroom funder that he is. Right. Or, mm-hmm. or shadow leader, what, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um is is very very interesting to me and i think was such an interesting way to to like bookend the the series of like the first time you meet luthen he i i I think one thing that i do hope is like it's mentioned by luthen and it is mentioned in passing but like something that you know you didn't say in your wrap-up is like cassian's birth father was a separatist right like right cassian's cassian says that he learned how to shoot a gun and the first time that like he encountered violence was when he was a teenager and conscripted alongside his birth father right he, like was he, are you, was he talking about his birth father or was he talking about clem uh, uh, my impression was that it was his birth father mm. but i don't like and like on canari mm. but it's not clear right like it could be either clem or his birth father and both would be very believable right Right. but that like 
there are all of these other moments at which he could have bought all the way in. And like, Mm -hmm. it is also somewhat telling about like who Cassian is as a person that like the moments that he turns to these things that are all acts of rebellion or when he's out of other options, right? Mm -hmm. When there is no other way forward, he says, okay, I can do that. And like, that's what makes him both like a very successful, like, schemer right because he can see Mm -hmm. all of the possibilities and take the one that he wants and he can see the one solution left on the table and figure out how he'll make it to the next day right and without without you know minimizing his losses and well it's like you said at the beginning he's not a hero right right? like i like a hero character yeah a hero character would would not take that many times to be convinced yeah right it makes him an interesting character yeah right but, like, does it make him the best person to ever exist in a Star Wars universe? Fuck no. Right? No. Um, there's, there's this one moment that I think is, like, worth wrapping up with. And it's, um, it, we've said a couple times that, uh, you know, Marva passes. She has this pre-recorded message. It's the thing that sort of incites this rebellion on, on Ferrix. In her speech, she, it, there's a moment where the speech turns towards rebellion. She's, she's saying, we've been asleep Right. This is a community. We love each other, but we've been asleep. Um, you know, we've not been paying attention to the empire as, as they started to, you know, uh, take over our home. And she says, the empire is a disease that thrives in darkness. And when she says those words, Luthen is standing there just off in the crowd. And he just like gets this like grin kind of on his, he just from nothing to this grin. And like the thing that I want to think he's thinking there is like, everything I've been working for is happening whether I'm here or not. Yeah. It's working. Yeah. Like, and like, I think bigger than that, like these individual moments of radicalization are happening, but like entire towns and entire planets are also rising up to fight back. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's the Nimic manifesto of, you know, these moments of, you know, of rebellion are happening everywhere. And it's, He's watching it happen. Yeah. Right. In that exact moment. Yeah. Because he, he knows what's about to come. Yeah. He gets the satisfaction of like, of seeing, if not the sunrise, right? The right. the beginning of the sunset, right? That will right. eventually lead to the sunrise. I want to know, I feel like they have to give him a death or a send off in season two that is in some way an echo of Cassian's eventual death on Scarf mm-hmm. in, um, in Rogue One. Yeah. Um, for those reasons, for he cannot see the end of this rebellion. Yeah. Right. Not only because in Star Wars, we've never heard of him. Right. right? <laughs> but like narratively, it does not make sense for Luthen to see the end result of his labor. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like uh, I think the the like some of the options that I can see are like a moment similar to like, you know, his escape like this, that daring escape where he literally blows up the tractor beam yeah. <laughs> of, of a battle cruiser. Like, right. Sorry, that blew my freaking mind because the that's most like, Star Wars this show is, is that <laughs> moment. <laughs> Good shit. Good shit. And like. I think that, you know, tying back to what you were saying a little bit ago, that is the other big takeaway for me, 
is something that this show does so skillfully, right? In connecting your big characters who are moving the rebellion forward are not young people. They Mm -hmm. are Marva who is old, who has passed away, who is like calling the town around her to arms. And it's Luthen who is clearly an older man who has seen his share. And like, I think like there's also a version where it's just like he just dies. Like he dies mm-hmm. in obscurity, right? Like he continues to do all of this and he passes away from old age as people do. Mm-hmm. I mean, w- fewer people in Star Wars with money pass away from old age <laughs> because they all just can live forever because of like the med stuff that right. they give you or whatever. Um it's science a med spike. Med spike, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah what I it's when Vel, when Vel is like putting the med spike into Nimic. Yeah, you know, maybe he'll get a heroic ending. Yeah, he deserves it. I think maybe. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't think he's again. I don't think he's like a great person. I just sure. think that like narratively, he probably deserves some sort of. He certainly ending. isn't afraid of risk in a way mm-hmm. that would mean that the only reason that he is ever risk averse is that he would be found out sooner. And he mm-hmm. would have less time to do his work, right? Mm-hmm. It is not that he is, he clearly demonstrates over and over again that he does not have regard for his personal safety. Mm-hmm. And he says it out loud. So. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, that's Andor. Good show. Oh, too many feelings, maybe, but like, good show. <laughs> yeah, good show. I have, I, I've been saying I think it's the best Star Wars thing. Like, it yeah. has. If it's not better than The Last Jedi for me, it is right there. It certainly gave me more feelings and, like, more complicated feelings and, like, was was more on the nose, you know, like, in particular. Like, the scene, like, on Rick's Road where the revolution, you know, begins, where the violence begins is so evocative for me. I think one thing that I really noticed in that scene that was so emotional and one of the reasons why I think it's so successful is... I've never seen in a Star Wars movie where a trooper is using literally lining up with a, with a riot shield shoulder to shoulder with a riot shield. Right. We don't see a lot of hand to hand Mm -hmm. policing combat. And like, yes, the blasters come out later, but like it is so successful to me as a Star Wars show because of that human element in so many, Mm -hmm. in more ways than one. Right. Well, uh next time we're gonna talk about something real different (laughs) (laughs) next time we are going to talk about something that is real different but i will say it is still going to be about classism so oh hell yeah you know and there's also british people involved. there are british people (laughs) there is an imperialism guy who cries a lot um imperialism yes and then also just like hobbies um so in the next episode we're gonna talk about the great pottery throwdown and british tv generally and british tv generally yeah how are you feeling about people finding you on the internet this week yeah sure find me on the internet uh you can find me on twitter at acfachi and all my stuff's at matthorton.live that's been updated finally amazing good job maybe i should have a website uh yeah i mean i just (laughs) it's a link tree for me so great anyway I'm glad that I got to talk to you about this and we will do it again next time. Talk to you next time.